Well, would you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 1 and verses 4 through 14 will be our text this morning. And we're looking and continuing to look at the arguments being made as to why Jesus is greater than angels. This whole first chapter is an argument to say that Jesus is greater than, than angels. The, the church uh, in the first century, the Hebrews, the, those that were receiving this letter, uh, they had begun to venerate angels. They begin to possibly be even worshiping. In chapter 13, we're told that they are to not be led astray by strange teaching. And some of, some of that strange teaching was that they were beginning to follow angels because angels had been uh, the voice of God in giving Moses the law. And so the author is arguing for the sufficiency and the supremacy and the greatness of Christ and the salvation that Jesus and Jesus alone has accomplished. But with the threat of persecution that they were facing and the worries of the world that was beginning to crush them, these Hebrews began to doubt and maybe began looking back to their Jewish roots by doing so they were tempted to turn from Christ because life was not going as expected. They had made a commitment. They had made a profession. They confessed the Lord Jesus as as Savior. And they, they even stated that they believed in Him. But then life all of a sudden took a turn and there was a threat of persecution. Maybe they were facing suffering. And so this letter was written. The entire letter was to encourage them of the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we have looked over the last several weeks, how Jesus is greater is because He is the Son of God, the eternally begotten Son of God, whereas angels were there to just serve and worship. That Jesus is actually King, and He is eternal, and that He is unchanging. And that could never be said of, of angels. And this morning, as we specifically look at verses 13 and 14, we see something of who Christ is in His kingdom that answers this question for us. What is this kingdom of Christ like? And we're going to see the supremacy of Christ's kingdom. We're going to see the supremacy of who Christ is. We're also going to see the nature of this kingdom. And then we're also going to see the comfort from this kingdom. So with that, let us hear the word of God, beginning in verse 4. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you laid 
The foundation of the earth and the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is the word of God, and may he bless the reading of it. This is his perfect word for his church today. You notice in verse 13, which will be where we will look this morning, you see it in brackets or quotations, which tells us this is an Old Testament citation specifically, It's a citation from Psalm 110. And that Psalm 110, verse 1, says this, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, actual psalm was introduced in verse 3. In fact, if you look at verse 3, it states that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So if you can look at verse 3, all the way to verse 13, they're kind of like bookends to the entire argument. And so to quote Psalm 110, beginning with it and then ending with it, is to make the argument end in this crescendo. Now something you have to know about Psalm 110, it is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. 22 times it's quoted in various different places. We'll look at a few of those places for their implications for us today. But this is a psalm that was used over and over by Jesus himself, by Paul, by others, to demonstrate so clearly who Jesus is. And what it teaches us, Psalm 110 teaches us, if we just think back to the the psalm in its totality, it teaches us that God's Son is King and Priest. And how through this priest king, he will use him to execute judgments on the kings of the earth. It describes how this priest king will shatter all the kings of the earth that are opposed to him. As the true sovereign Lord with dominion over all of creation. When Jesus uses this himself, it's in Mark chapter 12 and If you want to just turn there and see how Jesus uses this psalm, it it helps us to see how he applied it to himself. Jesus says in verse 35 of Mark 12, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? That is, Christ is the Messiah, the, uh, the one that the Jews were expecting to come. How can they say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And Jesus uses this to prove that he is greater than David. He uses this to show that he himself is the Lord, that he himself is God. And it was a prophecy, Psalm 110, written hundreds of years before the coming of Christ. It was a prophecy of Christ. It was a prophecy specifically of his exaltation that he would be sovereign king over all things. That's why it says, sit at my right hand is a prophecy. It's applied to Christ after his death, burial, 
resurrection. And it's upon His ascension to heaven that He sits at the right hand as a symbol of authority and shared equality with His heavenly Father. And so it's prophetic of what will happen. And that is why we are told in Acts chapter 2, verses 30 through 35, that David himself, who penned the psalm, was a prophet. And in Mark chapter 12, what did we read? David wrote this in the Spirit. In other words, we're reading God's Word given through the pen of David of the prophecy of the Son's exaltation in which he will become king. While we oftentimes think of the Psalms as relating to David's life, and they certainly did, the New Testament teaches us they pointed to something forward and something greater, which is his greater Son according to the flesh. So as we look at this text this morning, the first thing that we look at in answering, what is this kingdom like? We see the supremacy of the kingdom and the supremacy of Christ. You notice how verse 13 begins. And to which of the angels has he ever said? This is a rhetorical question. The answer is, God has never said this about angels. God has never said that angels sit at his right hand. God has never elevated angels to that place. They have never been described as a priest or a king. In fact, we're told in verse 14, I'll have you notice, it tells us the role of angels. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So we have seen all of these glorious truths of Christ that He is the eternal King, the eternal Son of God, that He is unchangeable, we then see that angels here are described as ministering spirits. Their service is for the benefit of believers. None of them sit at the right hand of the Father. You think of, of the prominent angels such as Gabriel, Notice what it says of Gabriel in Luke chapter 1, 19. It says, And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was uh, sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. The elevated stature of Gabriel is just that he is merely in the presence of God, but what is he sent to do? To minister? To deliver a word? He doesn't have the right hand of God, not even... One such as Gabriel sits at the right hand ruling with God. It says they're sent out. What did we see of Gabriel? That he was sent out to accomplish a job. It means that he's not in a position of power. He's not in a position of authority. Gabriel was not in a position of sovereignty, but rather he was one that received orders and given a responsibility to fulfill them in a lesser role. Now, right here, I know lots of questions are probably coming to your mind because they're the same questions I have. Wait, how do angels minister to us and serve? And how does that work? And how do we understand those things today? I think that misses the point, doesn't it? The whole entire point is this, is that they're inferior to Jesus. 
They're not as great as Jesus. They're awesome. They stand in God's presence and worship Him, and they're sent out to to, uh, do God's will on behalf of believers, and we don't understand. We're not told exactly how that works except for the glimpses we see of it in Scripture, like with Gabriel. But we're not given detail of how that happens. We're not. And we shouldn't be distracted by it. And I think that that's probably what the Hebrews were. We're distracted by those questions. And they begin to elevate angels. They begin to look to angels. And they begin to find comfort in angels. And we're told here that they were actually in a subservient role. So why would we look to those that are sent rather than the one who sends them on our behalf. That's the whole entire point. Their ministering spirits are sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. That is, that they help us along the way. And so we see, what is this kingdom like? Is Jesus as king and his kingdom is superior because of who Jesus is and that the angels actually serve Jesus. But then we begin to see the nature of this kingdom because we see that Jesus' enthronement is in his kingdom where he rules as king. It says, sit at my right hand, which is the position of authority. It's the position of honor. It's the position of glory. We've already seen here a a bit of Jesus' sovereignty where we are told that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. In other words, Jesus' ruling from his throne is that over all things, that all things exist through and from him, and then he himself holds together all things. And he does this from that right hand of power. And so we see here, sit at my right hand, is speaking of his general kingship over all that exists. What is the kingdom of Christ? It is all that exists. There's nothing outside of it. There's nothing that catches him by surprise. There's nothing outside of his control. There's not anything that exists that is not under his authority. Speaks of his general kingship. And here it's specifically speaking of his rule, as we will see over his enemies, where it says, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, meaning this, he has conquered his enemies. Oftentimes people ask, well, when does, when does the rule of Christ begin? Well, let's let God answer that. Ephesians chapter 1, in, chapter, in verse 20. It says this, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So according to God's own word, when does the rule of Christ begin in that he inherits 
that greater name, when he inherits that kingdom, it is upon his resurrection and ascension. So when does Jesus rule? When does Jesus rule in absolute sovereignty and authority? When are his enemies crushed? Now. They're crushed under his feet right now. See, we have to think of something when we think of this about the work of Christ. In the work of Christ, we see by his death he accomplished salvation. We see in his resurrection that's the approval of the Father and the vindication of his work. And the ascension when he rises to heaven, it was for his enthronement as the God-man. Jesus truly God, truly man, sitting as king and currently ruling. So listen to me carefully, church. Our comfort is found not in a future rule only, we do have comfort there, but that Jesus now and is forever king, reigning over his kingdom. And his enemies have been placed under his feet. Let me give you an illustration of what it looks like for his enemies to be under his feet. And I can find no better illustration than from the Word of God. And we see this in Joshua in chapter 10. It says, And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, these are kings that had been, nations that had been defeated. And these kings are now brought to Joshua. Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come there, put your feet on the necks of these kings. How do we understand the enemies of Christ being placed under his feet? Much like those kings being placed under the feet of Joshua and his men. It's absolute submission. Absolute authority. That is the rule of Christ even now. And when we think of this kingdom, I think it's helpful to think of it in in two ways. Physical or general and spiritual. Our, Our own statement of faith, the Baptist faith and message, describes the kingdom like this. By the way, the main theme of the Bible is the kingdom of God. But our our, our own confession says the kingdom of God includes both his general sovereignty, and remember, sovereignty means rule. It means that he's king. So the the kingdom of God includes both his general sovereignty over the universe, that that is all things, and his particular kingship over men who willfully acknowledge him as king. And that would be that spiritual aspect of the kingdom. There's that that reality, uh, that physical uh, that we experience right now. Christ is king over that. Christ rules over that. Christ is sovereign over all that exists. But then there's also that, that inward spiritual reality that if you're in Christ this morning, you follow Christ. Why? Because He is King of your life. And your desire, because of His grace, is to do what the King has commanded you to do. That is His rule. That is His sovereignty and ruling over your heart. Now, so we see those two distinct things, but they're they're tied together 
and really cannot be separated. But when you think of this general sovereignty, I want to look at it like this, is how Christ is king and how He is ruling and how this manifests itself right now. The first way is I should point out to you is this, is that Jesus as sovereign king that has placed His enemies under His feet is building and He is protecting His church. Christ is building and He is protecting His church in all nations and that the church is growing through the proclamation of the gospel that comes through His disciples. You know what He says in Matthew chapter 16, and I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. Let me ask you, who will build the church? Christ. I can't, you can't. We may be the means that God uses and we are the means that God uses, but it is Christ Himself who is sovereign ruler, enthroned at the right hand, who builds His church. But not only does He build it, He promises it protection. We are told this, and the gates of hell, that would be an enemy of Christ, it shall not prevail against it. In other words, the church is being built by Christ and Christ Himself sends guard over it, protecting it as sovereign king at the right hand. His enemies are under him. We also see this is that Christ is over and ruling over all earthly rulers. We see in Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. That is that there are literal kings and there are literal leaders that conspire against Christ. What do we see? He who sits in the heavens laughs. What does Romans chapter 13 teach us? There is no governmental authority put in place apart from the sovereign hand of Christ. He is in control over that. He is sovereign over that. But He is also sovereign over just the, the physical earth itself. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 26... Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you of not more value than they? You say, well, this is speaking of the heavenly Father. That's absolutely right. But we never separate the work of Christ from the Father. As Jesus himself says, as my Father works, so do I. And that that work is accomplished through the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words... As we've so often said, there's not, a, there's not a blade of grass that grows apart from the rule of Christ. There's not a drop of rain that ever touches this earth that wasn't put there by the Lord Jesus Christ. He is sovereign over all things. And that's His general. We see it general. But what about His spiritual kingdom? What are the, who are the enemies of this spiritual kingdom? Well, the most obvious enemy of the spiritual kingdom of Christ would be Satan. In fact, we see in Ephesians chapter 12, uh, 6, verse 12, 
For we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We're told there that that is our real battle, that is our spiritual battle that we face right now. But what do we know about Christ's rule? And what do we know about that other world? Is Christ has prevailed over it. In fact, we're told He has placed over it. He has conquered it. And this is why we see in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, these words, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What does this say? Christ prevailed over Satan. Satan is a defeated and crushed foe. That is why we are given the Great Commission, friends. And what is the Great Commission? Go out into all the nations proclaiming the gospel because Satan cannot influence them anymore. He does not have dominion over them. I shouldn't say influence. He doesn't have dominion over them. Satan is crushed. He doesn't have his own sovereignty He can't do anything outside of the will of God. And Christ has himself crushed him. He who is in Christ is greater than he who is in this world. The world itself is a system of evil that is an enemy of Christ. The world is a system. In John, you find the word world used over and over again. And it's usually... In John, it's speaking of a system. And we are told this about the world. In John chapter 15, verse 18, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before you. I know the word if introduces a conditional statement, but it's not at one of those. This might be a possibility. It is, this is a reality. The world hates Jesus, the world loves darkness, and hates light. We are told that in the Gospel of John chapter 3. Jesus says that the world hates Him, and what did the world do to Him? The world gathered against Him to hang Him upon a cross. But what do we know about the rule of Christ? And what do we know about His kingdom? He has prevailed over the world. Look at John chapter 16, verse 33. He says this, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, take courage. I have overcome the world. That is, Jesus has conquered it. He says, while you're here in it, you may face problems, you may face suffering, but Christ has prevailed over the world because He is enthroned at the right hand of majesty on high. What a promise, isn't that? What a promise that while we face momentary affliction, Christ has already conquered this system that is opposed to Him and that is opposed to His people. And He even says, I give you peace because I have conquered it. Take courage. Listen. There is nothing this world can dish out that Jesus cannot heal 
and even provide the balm of His peace over the wounds this world gives us because Christ has conquered it. Christ has also conquered death, which is an enemy. You see in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 15, in verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. But Christ has prevailed over death. If you just go a few verses over in verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? What a wonderful reminder that in Christ who is the resurrection and the life, in Christ, the one who is life and who gives life, that in Him, though we die, we shall yet what? Live. Look what we're told of His kingdom. Because He has conquered death, we're told in Revelation 21, verse 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. There's nothing that cannot be healed in Christ. We are told not only shall we live in Him, but we are promised this eternal reward with Him that is so great that we can't even comprehend what that's like. But there's something else that Christ has conquered, and that is sin. And sin is an enemy of Christ. You see in Romans chapter 8, in verse 7, it says this, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. This is speaking of sin. Sin is lawlessness. That word hostile means this, it's personal enemy. Sin is a personal enemy of Christ. It hates Christ. It's hostile. But what do we know about what Christ accomplished on the cross? He overcame sin. He prevailed over it. In Romans chapter 8, verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Sin itself has been conquered. Christ who knew no sin, became sin, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. He has conquered sin. Now I want you to notice the nature of His kingdom, how it's described in regards to this conquered foe. Romans, or 1 Corinthians excuse me, chapter 6, verse 9 Notice how the kingdom of God is described. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Speaking of the kingdom. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Why? 
Because in Christ, we who were once these things are cleansed. This is why we have the good news of the gospel, verse 11. And such were some of you. Such were some of you. The reality is this, is today if you're sitting here and you are in Christ, such were you. We're all guilty of those things. We've all fallen short of God's glory. We've all sinned. None of us are worthy of that. This is why we're told, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So that means there's this reality of us living in the here and now in the kingdom of Christ. And that is this, is we are no longer identified but by what once identified us. But we've been cleansed from it. We've been changed. We've been changed by that same power by which Christ upholds the entire universe by the word of his power. We think of the grasp sin has on us, and it has a grasp on us. That grasp has been broken by a greater power, the Lord Jesus Christ, who rules at the right hand of majesty, who sat We are no longer identified of this. This is why the Scripture can speak of the Christian in very radical ways. In 1 John 3, verse 4 through 6, it says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And I know that when you hear that or you read that, you think, but wait, I keep sinning. And yeah, we do. But it no longer has a grasp on us. You know what I love about the gospel or the first letter to John of John is this, is the, the perplexity of this. It's almost, um, it's almost contradictory. It's not contradictory, but it sounds like it. We're told this in John, if anyone says he doesn't sin, he's a liar. And I think I can relate. But then we're also told anyone that's in Christ doesn't continue sinning. And so you see those two truths that are running side by side. The reality is, yes, we still sin, but because we're in Christ, the power of sin has been broken. It's been defeated because Christ sits at the right hand of the majesty of of the Father. That's why we can speak of the Christian life in such radical ways that if you are in Christ, well, you're you're no longer identified by those things. You've been changed because Christ rules. This is speaking of this life and how we experience this kingdom now, but in His heavenly kingdom, any remnant of this is, is removed. It's realized in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8, but for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. There comes a complete separation of those things that are conquered right now in the life of the Christian. There becomes a complete separation of those things. And those 
that no longer, uh, or those that are identified by those things but not identified by Christ, they're barred from entering and they're cast into the lake of fire. Otherwise, guess what? The kingdom of God allows sin into it. And then Christ did not conquer sin. Christ did not conquer the world. Christ did not conquer Satan. Now, I think we've seen clearly that Christ has conquered the world. Christ has conquered Satan. Christ has conquered death. Christ has conquered sin. So, if He has conquered these things, currently, right now, what we're living right now, why do we see Satan roams like a roaring lion? Why do we see death still taking place? Why do we experience a world system that hates Jesus? Why do we still struggle with sin in this flesh? Why do we experience it? Well, first thing is this is, it's not because Christ hasn't conquered these things. He has. Yet we still see them as in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 8 says this, in putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. Now, notice those two statements. Everything has been put under him. There's nothing outside of that that hasn't been put under him. But yet, right now, how we experience things, we don't see all of that. It's often explained this way, and I think this helps to make sense. You remember in World War II, there's D-Day. We celebrate D-Day, don't we? It was June 6, 1944, where the Allied troops stormed Normandy, the beaches of Normandy. What happened at Normandy? What happened at D-Day? Basically, that's when the forces of Nazi Germany were defeated. D-Day was the day of victory. That, in effect, ended the war. But that's 1944. Why is it that we don't celebrate the end of the war until they surrendered in 1945? You see, there's this period of time between D-Day and what became known as VE Day, Victory Day, Victory Over Europe Day. D-Day ended the war. It just wasn't recognized until Victory Day, a year later. That's how it works. Is there's this already conquered? Jesus has already conquered these things. His enemies have been placed under his feet. We are awaiting the full consummation and the culmination of that. But it is already accomplished. And that's what we must understand. And what we need to know of that day that we await for is this. We're told in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 1. Excuse me, 2 Thessalonians. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, 
they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. That is the culmination of it. You know, this passage is sometimes uh, misunderstood. When we read that phrase, the presence of the Lord, we sometimes think that hell is its own separate entity where God is not or not sovereign over. That's not what it means. To be turned from the presence of the Lord means He turns all of His love, grace, and mercy from you, and you only experience His justice. Friends, people that are going to spend an eternity separated from Christ only wish they could escape the presence of God. But they can't for all of eternity. They will experience His justice. But we have this wonderful reminder for those who are in Christ, verse 10. When He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. We will experience His rule and its fullness over His kingdom and in His kingdom over His enemies that He has conquered both generally, physically, and spiritually. But there's one final thing that we recognize about this kingdom. We've seen seen the supremacy of Christ in His kingdom. We've seen the nature of the kingdom. But now we see the comfort in the kingdom. This letter was written to encourage Christians that were facing persecution. This letter was written because people were facing the world and Difficulties, just like this morning, you you face difficulties. This morning, you face the trials of this world. And sometimes it seems like it's crushing in around you. And so what is it that God wants to communicate to us? It's this, is that Jesus sits at the right hand, and He has sat at the right hand, which is where we derive our comfort. He sat. What's the significance of that? He sits because His work is accomplished. And we've referenced this before, as Hebrews makes the case that he is the great high priest, the priests continually stand to make uh, intercession and to mediate between the people and God. Christ sits because he's accomplished it. He can rest. His work is accomplished. He has accomplished salvation. But if Christ had not sat down, that would mean what? Well, he's got more work to do. If Christ wasn't sitting, it would mean things are left undone. It would mean that Christ has an incomplete task. I always think about when I was in grammar school and I would be given homework. And when I did it, I always missed points because I'd forget to put my name on it. It's the easiest point you can get. It was always incomplete. Christ's work is not incomplete. It's perfectly done. He did not miss a thing. It's all finished. It's all accomplished in Him. We're not waiting for Him to accomplish something else on our behalf of salvation. He's already done it. He's already conquered His enemies. He doesn't have more work to do. He doesn't have an incomplete task. 
because our Lord sat down. He has accomplished the plan given to him by his Father. He has sat down in victory, resting from his work of atonement. And now in completion of his work, he mediates on your behalf and ever lives to do so, ruling for your good, for your benefit, sovereign over his kingdom, with his enemies under his feet, defeated. Christ sits as a conquering king with his feet placed on the necks of his enemies. There's nothing left to accomplish for your salvation. If you're in Christ, you can rest. You've been forgiven. It's a complete atonement. Jesus paid it all. There's nothing left for him to pay for you because he sat. If you're in Christ, you can have complete assurance of your salvation. Because he sat down, it's complete. You'd never have to worry about losing it because it's not yours to lose. He's the one who accomplished it. He's the one who paid for it. He's the one who has secured it. He is the one who continues to guard it. Because he sat. And Christ will continue to build his church. And Christ will continue to protect his church until he returns. His promise is sure, as we already saw. He doesn't change. He won't change his mind on you. He doesn't doesn't forget something. He's infinite. He's eternal. And he rules right now. Despite what takes place in this world and where it seems like things are, are moving, we already know the world hates us, but guess what? Christ conquered it. And he gives you peace right now in the midst of it. And so if you know Christ, you have great comfort. You have great means of assurance found in Christ and Christ alone. But that is to those that have placed their trust in the Lord Jesus, those who have rested in Jesus, those who have come with the empty hands of faith and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And if you're not in Christ, today is the day. Today is the day to call upon the name of the Lord. Today is the day. Right now, it's urgent that you call upon the Lord Jesus Christ because He is our merciful King that welcomes with open hands those who come to Him. And He bids you, He commands you, come to Him now. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ and in Him we have a complete salvation that is lacking in nothing and that in Him we can even be declared to be righteous and holy because of His complete work. We have a great sovereign King I pray this would comfort us, this would encourage us as we face the trials of this world. And we pray that, Father, uh, for those that may not know the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would call upon his name. But we pray that now we would be, by your grace, given assurance and comfort even now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.